Good Sunday morning, Las Vegas. Welcome to Beyond the Build here on News Talk 840 KXNT. Today's show is a best of Beyond the Build. Happy Independence Day to you. We have the weekend off, but we wanted to bring you some of the conversations that we've had so far this year that we really liked. First up is Henry Breen, former reporter with the Las Vegas Review Journal. Henry has now moved back to his hometown of Tucson, Arizona, but did a landmark series on water in southern Nevada. So here's Henry Breen. You're listening to the best of Beyond the Build on News Talk 840 KXNT. And of course, on this show, we talk a lot about growth, about economic growth, physical growth here in the valley in Las Vegas. But none of that is possible without, guess what, water. And uh, we're going to be joined now by Henry Breen from the Las Vegas Review Journal. Henry writes about water and the environment over at the RJ. He's worked there since 2003. He is a native of the Southwest, so he knows all about uh, the environment and growing up in the desert. Henry, thanks for joining us here on Beyond the Build. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, so your series, you did a 10-part series called The Water Question on the RJ. And if those of uh, our listeners out there haven't read it yet, you have to. It, it was so informative. I mean, I, I've lived here twice, Henry. Went to school in Nevada, went to UNLV. I'm a UNLV graduate. Learned all about everything you can possibly think of. And I learned so much uh, from your series. And really, the water question is, do we have in the valley that is growing again, both from a population standpoint, from a construction standpoint, everything you can possibly think of, do we have enough water? And your series goes through that and asks the question in very different ways and gives us a lot of background. But before we kind of get to that answer to that question, um, Henry, talk a little bit about, um, I think people have a misconception about how much water we use, where it comes from. And for example, when Lake Mead is as low as it's been for this last several years, and people see that white ring of about 130 feet around the lake. And those of us who were here earlier remember when the water was all the way to the top of that. Um, but talk about um, what the, miscon the biggest misconception about the water at Lake Mead and where it goes and how much of it we use. Yeah, that's interesting. And it was kind of the, the bones of the series, to be honest with you, is, is just kind of explaining to people how it all works. Um, Nevada basically gets about 2% of the, of the Colorado River. Uh, so we have a very small share that was established way back in the 1920s when there weren't very many people living uh, in Nevada, period, but let alone uh, southern Nevada. Um, nobody here thought we'd need very much water, so they just simply didn't fight for more than the 300,000 acre feet that we ended up getting in those early negotiations. So we get a very small share of the river, and basically that white bathtub ring you mentioned out there at the lake um, really doesn't have a lot to do with uh, Nevada um, and how much water we use, because uh, we use such a small share that uh, we don't affect the lake to any great, de uh, any great degree. Most of the water that comes out of Lake Mead goes downstream to uh, California and Arizona, and roughly three-quarters of that water, in fact, three-quarters of all the water used on the Colorado River, uh, goes to grow crops. It goes to agriculture. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, it's amazing. You talked about the, the original, when the original seven western states met in Santa Fe, New Mexico back in 1922 to negotiate what was going to be done with the Colorado River. Uh, Las Vegas had a total population of about 2,500. Now it's 2 million, 41 million uh, visitors per year. And so, so to the point about not knowing, and no one could have seen back then, right? There was just no way to understand uh, that what Las Vegas would become. And I th the thing that I found so fascinating about the history of it all is that 
it's not just Nevada with the issue. Like you said, you go down into the Imperial Valley in California where the water goes for agricultural needs and even into Mexico where they use it as well. Um, talk about what has to be done now because this is not just a Nevada issue. I think people here, especially those that have moved in new to the area, they look at it as, well, boys, th- this is an issue for us and we're going to run out of water. But in actuality, it's a larger issue for a lot of different folks. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a total southwestern problem. I mean, we talk about how small Las Vegas was back in 1922. Well, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and that was a much, much smaller city uh, in 1922. Phoenix as well, Los Angeles, um, you know, all these cities that have grown up uh, in the southwest over the last uh, almost 100 years. um, No one really could have foreseen that there'd be that many people who'd want to live out here in the desert. Um, so that's been an issue, and so now we've got sort of this tug of war going on between municipal water users and the historic use of the river, which was really, you know, diverting the water to grow crops. Um, and you know, they are still the biggest water user on the river, but um, eventually, some of that's going to have to change if if we want to continue to have these large cities out here and and continue to grow crops of any kind. Yeah, and Henry, everybody's sort of playing nice right now, right? They're, everyone's trying to come up with a, with an equitable. Um, change and a plan, right? I mean, this is this is what has to happen. Is there has to be some sort of plan where everybody agrees to it? And what I deduced from your story and reading it was that a lot of that, and you had a lot of different varying opinions, which was great, which made the piece excellent because it, it gave both sides to issues. Is the fact that um, that means, in essence, everybody's going to have to use less, uh, but nobody really wants to give up their birthright, as you call it, in there, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these numbers that were set back in the 20s, um, people sort of cling to those as as their their birthright. But the the fact of the matter is, and as several experts in the piece point out, um, uh, that water was sort of parceled out at a time when, you know, to make matters even worse, the Colorado River was was, uh, experienced a very wet period, maybe the the wettest period in in several uh, centuries. Um, and as a result, that the water they divvied up back then simply doesn't exist. Uh, the, the river hasn't produced that much water, certainly not recently. Um, so, yeah, the, the experts generally agree that everyone's going to get by with less on the river. Um, I guess the good news in my mind is that, you know, because three-quarters of the river is used to grow crops, and some of those crops are, you know, not food crops. You know, we're talking about uh, alfalfa, we're talking about cotton in some cases. Um, there is some give in the system, and, and if it ever comes down to a choice between, you know, uh, Las Vegas uh, remaining with a water supply or growing, you know, cotton in central Arizona or, or alfalfa uh, down in California someplace, um, I can see why farmers are worried about that because it seems like a, a fairly obvious choice to most people. I think there's going to have to be some give. Um, Fortunately, I think there's also a lot more we can do, not just in in the farming community, but in cities to, to use water more efficiently. Um, and if we start with that, um, we can stretch what we have a lot further. Right. And, and, and a lot of a lot of your story deals with that. And, and of course, the, the work that has been done in southern Nevada, I moved here in 1991 the first time uh, before all that sort of happened. And the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which was established right around the same time, has done an amazing job. Las Vegans and the entire region in Southern Nevada should be very proud of the conservation efforts they've had. And you talk a lot about, for example, construction with new homes and getting rid of lawns, because that's the one thing that struck me too. And I, I kind of knew it. I think it's so sort of intuitive, 
but to see massive patches of grass, right? And I'm not talking about the parks, but I'm talking about in people's yards and large estate homes and all of these things. That's where the water gets wasted because I think, as your your pieces point out, water that goes down a drain is actually reclamated. It's, it's recycled and used again uh, versus water that goes out on lawn via irrigation uh, is lost forever. Yeah, that, that's another big, big misconception with Las Vegas water use is, is the fact that we have this great arrangement because of our proximity to Lake Mead. Uh, we're in a position where we can uh, collect all of our uh, wastewater, uh, treat it, and send it back down the Las Vegas wash back to Lake Mead. And for every gallon of, of wastewater that we do that with, we can draw another gallon of water out of Lake Mead. So we essentially can recycle all of our indoor water use with you know some small system losses along the way, but it's it's uh, as uh, one water expert put it, it's it's sort of a closed loop. So as long as we can uh, maximize how much of our water is used indoors and minimize how much of it is sort of lost by you know spilling it out on a lawn or or using a cooling tower someplace, mm-hmm. um, we can we can continue to add homes because it ultimately doesn't have any real effect on how much water we draw from the lake. It just uh, continues the closed loop. No, and that's that. I mean, I, I knew I knew part of that, but the, the extent of it to me, in, in, as you outlined in your piece, was fascinating. And I think uh, folks can learn a lot from that as well. Now, the the, the good news is the the Clark County voters and and have funded, uh, of course, this third uh, intake uh, out at Lake Mead, which is basically the ability for us to take water from Lake Mead even when it gets down to its lowest, you know, emergency point. Tell people about that and what that means for Las Vegas. Everybody looks at us growing again, right? After the 2008 crash and things built back up, we're back to a point where jobs are plentiful, uh, housing is plentiful and being built more. Businesses are coming in and building uh, all sorts of things. Uh, Talk about that third intake and what that means for future growth here in Las Vegas and providing us the water we need. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, despite the fact that, that Nevada gets the smallest share of the Colorado River, we're actually in a pretty good position um, in a lot of different ways. One is that thing I mentioned a moment ago is the whole uh, return flow credit arrangement where we can recycle our indoor use. The other thing that we have done is, and, and it did cost quite a bit of money, close to, you know, a, I think $1.8 billion in it will be the final tally, but we built this thing called the third intake out at Lake Mead, and essentially it's a it's a third straw. We have two straws we use already to draw water from the lake, and we get 90% of our water supply from that lake. Um, the third straw is at the very bottom of the lake. It's at one of the deepest parts of that lake. And uh, with this new pumping station that's being built to go with it, once that's done in 2020, we will be able to draw water uh, even if the lake gets so low that it reaches a point called Deadpool, where the water is so low that it can no longer be released through Hoover Dam downstream. Essentially, we will be the last uh, community to be drawing water from Lake Mead uh, at that point, and we'll still be able to draw our entire supply with that third intake. Wow, wow just remarkable. That third intake valve, of course, approved by voters uh, with a little bit of a sales tax and a bond is going to pay big dividends for this community uh, for years to come. And uh, no matter, even if the lake, as you said, gets back to that Deadpool state, we can still tap water out of it to to make sure that Las Vegas has enough water to survive. So big news. We're going to step aside when we come back. More of our conversation here on the Best of Beyond the Build with Henry Breen on water in Southern Nevada.
All right, we're back now with Henry Breen from the Las Vegas Review Journal. And Henry, we're talking about that that third intake valve and what that means for Las Vegas. And one of the questions I think, you know, the, the, the kind of end as you got towards the end of your series, the question that most people ask is about how many people can Las Vegas possibly contain uh, and grow from a size and a population standpoint, uh, knowing where the water situation is at. Because when you talk to the casual resident, they always feel like, well, geez, we're not going to have enough water to grow. And and you answer this, I think, in a really brilliant way, talking to the experts you talk to, which is you give kind of a worst case scenario, meaning that if everything that can possibly go wrong with the Colorado River and this mega drought that we've seen over the last 20 years, which some experts in your story say could last 50 years or longer, um, you have a number there. What's that worst case scenario? How large could, could Las Vegas get with the existing water supply uh, in that worst case scenario? Uh, yeah, really. That that was the water question, and that's what started the whole thing. Is because every time I write a story about you know the the bathtub ring at, at Lake Mead, I get the same couple of phone calls from readers who mm. who immediately say, "We have to stop growing. We can't keep approving new housing developments in this water situation." And and I wanted to kind of drill down into that a little bit and look at well, how long will what we have last? Um, and of course, everything with water issues is incredibly complicated. There's lots of moving parts, uh, but. Uh, ultimately, uh, based on Southern Nevada Water Authority's projections, if we see greater than expected growth, basically a growth boom, um, and then we also see the worst case scenario on the Colorado River where things are going down so low that uh, Las Vegas and, and others on the river are forced to take massive cuts uh, to our annual allotment, um, it looks like the number we could serve is around 2.5, little over 2.5 million people. Uh, and that's just with our current Colorado River supplies and the um, lesser amount of groundwater that we use every year, which amounts to about oh, 10% of our total supply. Yeah. And of course, we're now at about 2.25 million, if you go by the estimates in the last, uh, and we have a census coming up, obviously, so we'll get a better sense for that and get the numbers. But um, that clearly, you know, that's the scary number, right? If if, if things, every, th- every possible thing went wrong, we're, we're approaching that limit versus kind of the middle case scenario, which you had in there was, I think, just about 3 million. And is that is, is that basically with things getting a little better, plans put in place, and we're able to conserve and figure out something with the other uh, other Western states? Well, that I think you're referring to the 2.96 million that's number. Correct. And that's correct. Uh, and uh, that number is... Um, Maybe is maybe the, the least likely uh, thing we'll we'll see that that number assumes that um, we grow at the, the the rate that everybody expects us to uh, somewhere in the vicinity of two percent I think over mm-hmm. the next few years anyway um, and then uh, things will improve enough on the river so that there aren't any shortages um, that scenario is very unlikely to happen uh, just because it looks like there'll be at least some measure of shortage uh, on the river in the coming years, maybe as soon as next year. Um, so that's sort of the, the sort of the best case scenario. Um, one thing to remember though, is, is when we talk about the 2.5 million or the 2.9 million number, that's just how long our current supply of Colorado river water and groundwater will, will, uh, will serve us. Um, that that's, uh, our current permanent supply. Uh, on top of that, we also have socked away, close to 2 million acre feet of, of water uh, in various uh, groundwater banks and, and other kinds of banks. Um, so we have sort of a savings account that will, that will cushion us, and, and depending on how we use it and how 
conditions are that could last us for decades. Yeah, and, and one of the things I, I also in, in your piece you talk about is that there is water in southern Nevada or, or central eastern Nevada. Uh, of course, it's not down here. We've kind of tapped uh, a long time ago uh, the aquifer that lies under Las Vegas that actually was one of the reasons Las Vegas was founded, right? Because there was water here. Uh, and that's up in Lincoln and Pine Counties. Um, and that has, that's a controversial plan, though. I know that there's plans to, to do that drawn up, ready to go to bring water down if we were to need it. But there's a lot of obstacles in the way of that, is there not? Yeah, that's one of the uh, so-called future options. Um, that would not—that's not included in that groundwater banking that I'm talking about. Right. Um, that's a—that's a future alternative where they, the water authority wants to uh, build a pipeline up uh, as much as 300 miles away to White Pine County and Lincoln County and bring groundwater down from up there. That—that's a project that's been um, it, in the planning stages since the late. 1980s, when the Water Authority, not even the Water Authority, it was the Water District because the authority didn't exist yet, filed on uh, unappropriated groundwater all, all over uh, the southern half of the state. Um, and that yeah, you, there's a great deal of controversy surrounding that project. There's also a lot of concern about how much water really is available up there and how much that project will cost. Um, so that uh, I, I know the Water Authority is working very hard to try and get it, that project permitted and ready to go. Um, I think there's a lot of questions still about um, just how viable that project is. Mm, yeah, and I know uh, even uh, our new governor, Steve Sisolak, uh, didn't have exactly uh, positive words to say about it, although Harry Reid, our former U.S. senator, said, hey, if you got to flush toilets on the Strip, right? That was something, to, the quote I'm paraphrasing, of course, from your story. Uh, but I found, I found that, that gave me, I actually laughed out loud as I was reading uh, that one, but but understand what he meant there. Um but when you look at this situation too, Henry, uh, and and the and the water use and what's happening, there are things that that you're starting I mean, the, the conservation piece. And, and if people can conserve more, especially when it comes to uh, irrigation. Now we know too in the city of Las Vegas and in Clark County, for example, there were municipal golf courses and all these things. Those now have been cut back. Some of them even gone away. Even golf courses like the Badlands, which has been a little bit controversial. But but getting rid of pop, uh, poss- possible water kind of sinkholes like that, where this it's a ton of water to do a golf course, and how many golf courses do we really need? Um, those are all things too that that come down to also planning, correct? So when you when the city and the county and different municipalities uh, permit for projects, uh, how much are they working closely with the water authority and keeping an eye on those things to make sure that they don't use too much water? I think there's some discussion that goes on now. We. We did in, in response to the drought uh, that really took hold in a big way in 2002. We enacted um, some of the strongest uh, drought measures in, in the Southwest, and one of the one of the biggest things we did was uh, we literally banned the front lawn mm-hmm. on on new homes in uh, in, in the valley, uh, and that has made a huge difference in reducing the amount of, of frankly decorative, ornamental, kind of useless grass that gets planted in the valley. Um, the Water Authority will tell you that they're not out to get, you know, every blade of grass uh, in, in town. Uh, you know, they, they see things like parks and, yes, even golf courses as as a functional use of turf. Mm. Uh, what they want to get rid of is the stuff that's put out there just to look nice, the stuff that only gets walked on, as they say, when someone goes to mow it. Um, they, they think if they can get rid of that turf, and they think they, they're only about halfway to doing that, um, that that alone could to, could produce enough water savings to add another 650,000 people to the valley. Wow. Um, so it seems like that's the place to start. You know, um, 
you know, you can argue about whether golf courses are, are you know, in the desert or are a, a reasonable use of water or not. But until we get rid of the stuff that's truly not being used for any kind of economic benefit other than look nice, um, I think that's where this all needs to start. Yeah, and I mean, you bring up uh, in your story one of uh, in one of the pieces you wrote wrote about a traffic circle, right? With a traffic circle with irrigation. Uh, one of the experts you talked to said that was one of their pet peeves. Seeing that or seeing the Summerlin Parkway where it's just grass in the middle of a highway, and those are the type of examples that that aren't real functional turf. Uh, but, uh, but Henry, listen, I'll tell you what, this, this series is phenomenal. Uh, I predict you're going to win an award for it because it was so well done. And everyone who lives in Southern Nevada, whether you're a small business person or just a resident, you need to read this to understand it. One of the things too, Henry, that was remarkable showing my, my wife was born and raised here. Her family came in 1960. So showing her the pictures, you have before and after pictures that you can swipe across on the digital side that shows like Gypsum Point, uh, which I used to swim at myself, uh, now just being completely gone. There's no water there at all. It is remarkable. And um, I even showed it to my kids to, to, to make sure they understand that conserving water is important. So, Henry, just a great piece of journalism. We thank you for spending so much time with us today. And make sure you follow Henry at Refried Breen, B-R-E-A-N, on Twitter as well. Henry, thanks for being with us today. It's been my pleasure. Again, thanks to Henry Breen from the Las Vegas Review Journal. Make sure you go read his stories. It's a 10-part series, ladies and gentlemen called the water question i think that's there's so many misconceptions about water here in las vegas and it's tied to growth we need water of course but the water issues we have are not going to stop growth you have to be smart about it yes less golf courses and more housing actually In, in the pieces he talks about how there's a misconception that if we build more houses and more businesses that's going to use too much water but as he said earlier on in our interview you actually, every time you send water down the drain, so whether it's a toilet, whether it's a sink, that water is actually uh, reclamated. It's recycled. And for every gallon we put back of, of, of reclaimed water, we can take a, a gallon out of Lake Mead. So, so very, very interesting. And I swear you will learn a lot of it. And when you see those before and after pictures of Lake Mead, um, they're depressing for those of us who, who, who used to go to the lake when it was nice and full. Uh, but it's a necessary thing. You know, show your kids, show your friends, make sure they really understand the water issue. Make sure they understand that more water evaporates out of Lake Mead every year than Las Vegas itself uses out of the lake. Just remarkable facts, remarkable figures, and the right questions were asked of the experts and their surprising and actionable answers in there as well. So make sure you check it out. And we'd love to hear from you too. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at, at uh, Beyond Build LV. Let us know what you thought about the interview and what you think about the show. We're going to step aside when we come back from this break. There's more of Beyond the Build here on News Talk 840 KXNT. Welcome back to the best of Beyond the Bill here on Independence Day weekend. The 4th of July is past, but we hope you're enjoying the full weekend. I know I am. That's why we're not here right now, but we're bringing you the best of conversations from the first half of the year here on Beyond the Build. And one of those conversations we felt we wanted to bring you again was with Peter Guzman. Peter is the president of the Latin Chamber of Commerce, the son of Cuban immigrants who emigrated to Nevada back in the 60s. Peter is a force of nature here in Southern Nevada when it comes to business and the promotion of Latino-owned businesses. And uh, he is 
just a dynamic individual, of course. In addition to his role at the Chamber of Commerce, he's doing other things. And we talked to him about not only what he does personally there at the Latin Chamber and also as part of the uh, Community Benefits Oversight Committee with the Raiders Stadium, but also the impact that Hispanics have on business and development in Southern Nevada. So here's Peter Guzman, president of the Latin Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the best of Beyond the Build here on News Talk 840 KXNT. Welcome back to Beyond the Build here on News Talk 840 KXNT. And today we're, we're just happy to be joined by the head of the Latin Chamber of Commerce here in town, someone that I'm sure you've seen and heard all over because he is an incredible advocate for not only uh, the Hispanic uh, business community, but also for all of Las Vegas and the entire valley. And that, of course, is Peter Guzman. Peter, thanks for joining us today on Beyond the Bill. Oh, what a pleasure to be here. Uh, again, my name is Peter Guzman, President of Latin Chamber of Commerce. Thank you for saying that. Uh, just just honored to be here with you. I, I appreciate all that you do as well. You're very active, and uh, you know that's what we do. That We're here for, for our community. So, Peter, I mean, we talk about the growth of the Las Vegas Valley. We're on a great track again. We're seeing after, of course, the downturn in 2008 when things were really bleak for everybody around town. Uh, now things are growing again, and that includes uh, in the Latino community amongst businesses. Tell us a little bit about what the Latin Chamber does and the success you've seen in helping Latin businesses grow here in the in the community. So, listen, the Latin Chamber of Commerce exists to help uh, advocate for small business and protect small business. You know, that means, uh, when we got to fight against minimum wage increases, uh, you know, we're at the table when we, whatever we need to do to make sure that the momentum that we have right now, and believe me when I tell you, we have tremendous momentum out there. Uh, we need to continue that. And so, uh, you know, we also protect the, uh, we now have gotten involved in protecting the state bird, which we call the crane. And there's a lot of them on the strip right now. Whenever you see cranes, you see people working. And so, you know, we want to see more cranes and, and that's what we do. That's, that's our first and foremost. That's, that's our job because when we have people working, people thriving, the economy thrives. Now I want to leave you with this, with this very important, uh, number. Hispanic businesses are failing at a two-to-one less rate than non-Hispanic. That means 50%. I mean, they're really doing well right now. Yeah, and, and like my wife's family, uh, Cuban immigrants, your family came here to the United States. Talk about what business for you, your business journey, and how you got where you are today was taking that. It's what the American dream is all about, is it not? Yeah, no question. I mean, uh, I can't tell my whole story because it would take a too long. But listen, it start, a lot of my growing up was done on 28th Street and Bonanza. A uh, lot of love, but, uh, you know, some hard times. But uh, uh, I, I quickly realized after I bought my first home, which I negotiated after going to the library, picking up a book on real estate, uh, that's the first purchase I did. I turned to my wife. I was, I was parking cars at the time. Um, you know, nice job making decent money, but I knew that's not what I wanted to do. And after I negotiated with my neighbor two doors down from my dad's house, uh, I realized this is what I want to do. So I got into real estate and, uh, you know, I was top producer. That was rookie of the year. I had real success. Thank God. Um, I've sold over $650 million worth of real estate, uh, in my life. And I'm proud of that. And anybody can do it. You know, when you find your passion, and you and you really uh, work at it, it's an explosion. 
It's an explosion. That's right. It's the gr- embrace the grind and just go get it. Now, uh, for you talked about how how well Hispanic businesses are doing here in the Las Vegas Valley and Southern Nevada overall. What do you attribute that to? What is it about the opportunity here in Las Vegas and surrounding areas that has has helped those businesses succeed? Yeah. First of all, uh, Hispanics and particularly uh, uh, Mexicans, especially, are very entrepreneur. And why? Because they come from countries that don't offer the help. And, and opportunities that we have here. So they get here and they see this and they just embrace it and run with it and work hard. Uh, but, you know, we have a lot of momentum. We just come from a governor who uh, for eight years, um, you know, created a lot of momentum, a lot of uh, great opportunities for entrepreneurs to uh, grab and embrace. And, uh, you know, I think it continues on now. And then, and then you know, this sports implosion that we're having uh, is just creating a lot of uh, great energy and momentum it goes beyond sports. You know, other companies now start looking at us and want to come in here. Yeah, and, and of course, you're talking about Brian Sandoval, our first Hispanic governor uh, as well, too. So uh, he had a great stay, great friendly for business in the state of Nevada. Now, Peter, let's switch gears a little bit with the, with the time we have left, and that is one of the other roles that you have is – as part of the committee that is on the uh, part of the stadium committee uh, around community benefits plan and the community benefits plan, a very important piece to getting the stadium funded and to getting the stadium building and allowing opportunities for people all over the community in the business sector to be involved in this massive project. Talk about the community benefits plan, what it does and what the committee is doing now. Well, I'll tell you, uh, ironically, uh, we just had our meeting yesterday. The Raiders were there. Uh, first of all, I'm honored that the Raiders chose me to represent the radio organization on the Community Benefits Plan uh, Board. And so, listen, we saw, we heard the numbers yesterday. They are superseding all the numbers. So the Community Benefits Plan was put to create sort of goals and mandates on minority participation and, and Raiders' involvement in the community they're superseding all of the numbers. I mean, we have so many minorities working at that stadium, uh, earning a great living. Uh, we have minority companies, you know, bidding and winning. And, uh, and then we have the Raiders organization already the foundation deep in, in our community. These are all the things that we sat around and talked about that are now a reality. And I know that early on we we had uh, we had spoken to you before uh, at one of the meetings where um, where there was at the time there was nobody uh, from the Hispanic community that was represented on the board and like you said the Raiders stepped up chose you to be on that board um, and and now having that voice for the Hispanic community on that committee talk about what that's been for you and what you're hearing from the Hispanic business community and their involvement in the stadium project. Yeah, you know, as it turns out, there was a moment where I was uh, personally very uh, hurt. Um, but that was brief because it turns out that it worked out to be perfect because being chosen from the Raider organization meant a lot more. It meant a lot more to the Hispanic community. They know it happened and they're going to embrace this team. And, and that, that stadium is going to be full of a lot of Hispanics. And I'll tell you, I'm sure Mark Davis will not mind me sharing this. He shared with me that he was watching it the whole time on video and he chose me because of the way I conducted myself, and he was proud of that. And he called me and told me that. So that meant a lot to me. And, uh, you know, we're there to, to make sure things are implemented in the right way. The Raiders want that. They're not trying to run from that. And so we're making it happen. 
Yeah, and going out on the, uh, the stadium site, you see really the diversity in the workforce there is remarkable. I mean, that's what it should be. It looks like our area. And, and, and talk about how that project, I mean, how it's impacting not only the businesses that are participating, contractors, subcontractors, labor, um, but also already those, those folks building that stadium have the opportunity now to maybe purchase a home and do all these things. It's already impacted the economy, has it not? Of course, and it's, that's, a, that's what you want. You want the – I always talk about – the money in a circle, ro- you know, rolling all the way around it within our community, not leaving our community. We all benefit from that. And so, uh, you know, I'm so grateful. Uh, I remember the journey started uh, in Carson City. Uh, Tommy White and the laborers, they fought hard to get this thing. And, and now you're right. And property values are going up. That means more tax dollars for us. It's just a win-win. And we haven't even started the season yet. Yeah, no, it's 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 humming along. It's it's remarkable to see our community rally around this too. Now, uh, in closing, Peter, uh, tell people you don't have to be Hispanic. You don't have to be Hispanic-owned business to be a member of the Latin Chamber. Correct? You can still be involved. Thirty-two percent of our growth uh, over the last few years has been non-Hispanic membership because they see that we're relevant. They see we're working hard, and non-Hispanic businesses want to get into the you know the twelve billion dollar dollar amount that that is available and we're seeing tremendous growth of non-hispanic membership in our in our chamber and i'm so grateful for that because that also gives latin latin businesses hispanic businesses an opportunity to cross over so it's a win-win for everybody that's what i'm about that's right okay we've been talking with peter guzman from the latin chamber of commerce here in las vegas also a member of the community benefits uh, committee on the stadium committee so peter thanks again for joining us here on beyond the build Scott, thanks for all you do and wanting to uh, get our voices out there. This really helps our, our community get our voice out. You're listening to Beyond the Build here on News Talk 840 KXNT. Welcome back to Best of Beyond the Build here on your Independence Day weekend. We hope you've had a great time here in Southern Nevada. Uh, the heat, not too bad, actually. You know, that's the thing. I, I was reading uh, one of the National Weather Service reports. By the way, if you don't follow them, we talked to them earlier in the year as well, a segment on uh, what they're up to and how they track weather. If you look at it, we had the coolest 4th of July in six years this year. So if you look at the temperatures, yes, it's summertime, folks. It gets hot here in Southern Nevada. But Overall, we're actually a little bit below normal on some of those temperatures. Now, I know I always tell people we will <laughs> we will pay for it at some point because we live in the desert. We all love it. Yes, it's a dry heat, as they say, but nonetheless, it is hot out there, but uh, not too hot. So I hope you've enjoyed your Independence Day weekend. We've enjoyed spending some of it with you, albeit recorded. And we wanted to bring you, as I've said earlier in the show, uh, some of the best of conversations we've had this year so far on Beyond the Build. Of course, we bring you such dynamic guests and folks from all over uh, that give us uh, interesting points of view on development in Southern Nevada, on construction in Southern Nevada, on uh, uh, growth, and, and all of those things that come together. Of course, this this episode, we've heard about water. We've heard uh, from Peter Guzman from the Latin Chamber of Commerce, the impact Hispanics have in our local economy. And what we wanted to do with this last segment, of course, everyone is very excited about, and we talk a lot here, about the stadium project. 
And we spoke recently with Jonas Peterson, who is the president of the Las Vegas Global Economic Alliance. And Jonas talked to us about what the economic impact would be of a Super Bowl in Las Vegas and also the impact that the stadium, the Raiders and UNLV's new football stadium, will have here in our city. So here is Jonas Peterson from the Las Vegas Global Economic Alliance on the best of Beyond the Bill. We are joyed to be joined today by Jonas Peterson. He is the president and CEO of the Las Vegas Global Economic Alliance. And we're going to talk to him today uh, about a subject that he wrote about back in March, and that was what could the possible economic impact of our area of the Las Vegas Valley hosting the big game, the Super Bowl, of course, with the Las Vegas Stadium now under construction, slated to be completed in July of 2020. Uh Jonas wrote about this, and we're going to have him on today to talk about it. Jonas, thanks for joining us here on Beyond the Build. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, glad to chat. All right. Okay, so now we know the stadium. We see it every day now, the progress. We talk a lot about it on this show. Uh, In fact, uh, later on in this show, we we do an update, uh, as we do every week, about the construction of the stadium and and projects around it. And we had just this past week a stadium authority board meeting. So the stadium's impact on Las Vegas, there were people that were against the funding of the project because of the public money, the hotel tax and all of that. But at the end of the day, what some people, I think, had trouble seeing was, well, outside of NFL football games and UNLV football games, what is this going to do for our community? And, and in your, in your uh, piece here, which you wrote for your website about the economic impact of a possible Super Bowl, I think this goes to what these stadiums sometimes produce in areas that people don't necessarily look at and don't see, uh, and that is total economic impact. So you said this could impact our area and, and, and approach about a billion dollars of economic impact. Jonas, when you talk about economic impact of a game like the Super Bowl coming to Southern Nevada, what do you mean by that for folks that might not quite understand what the entirety of economic impact means? Yeah. Uh, so when you look at the Raiders coming with the new stadium uh, coming up out of the ground, most people believe we're going to have the chance to host a Super Bowl, maybe 2025. Um, I think our region, when that does happen, is uniquely positioned to deliver the biggest, the baddest Super Bowl celebration on the planet. Um, and here's the deal. This one event will generate a massive economic impact for Southern Nevada. I think it'll approach a billion dollars. It's all about visitor spending. We're talking hotel rooms, retail sales, transportation, temporary jobs, media, new taxes for, uh, for our economy. Much of this is new money from visitors coming from the outside, pouring it into our economy. So not only are we going to get the economic benefits, but it's bigger than that. There's tremendous branding and marketing opportunities for our region. We're saying that we want to become the sports and entertainment capital of the world, Hosting a Super Bowl helps make that claim a reality. It sure does. And, and for those of us who've lived in markets that have hosted Super Bowls, I grew up in San Diego, Jonas, and so I saw the impact that it had there yeah. uh, and actually changed a lot uh, in the 80s, in the late 80s. Uh, it changed, I think, the perception of San Diego for a lot of people to the outside world. Now, Las Vegas gets a lot of PR. We get a lot. We have the LVCVA does a lot of work to make sure people don't forget that we're here and, and want to come visit here. Uh, so some people would say, well, 
well, geez, Jonas, you know, they, 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 they already come here for the Super Bowl. We might not be the site of the Super Bowl, but we sell out every Super Bowl weekend because people come here for parties. And, of course, you have the sports gaming side. Talk about the difference, though, because this goes beyond just the resort corridor. It goes beyond just service industry. This has a big impact. Super Bowls have a big impact on, on local and small businesses, don't they? Yeah, um, and, and it's true. So we, uh, we already generate a massive impact on Super Bowl weekends, even without having the actual event. Uh, typically around $350 million, depending on how you measure it, and overall economic impact. We do it better than anybody else today. Let, let me give you a great stat to kind of bring this to life. So Minneapolis, uh, when they hosted the Super Bowl 2018, they brought in around 125,000 visitors for the Super Bowl weekend uh, experience. That same year, right, in Vegas, we brought in over 300,000 visitors for Super Bowl-related activities. We didn't even have, you know, the actual event, right? So we do it better than anybody else. And let's not forget um, our entertainment industry is successful because we're constantly reinventing ourselves to stay ahead of the competition. We're in a good position today, but our competition is advancing. So we're adding new capacity. We're building, uh, you know, a million square feet at the convention center. We have massive resorts planned and under construction. Um, this is part of a much larger strategy to stay ahead of the competition. It is. And, and to me as well, I think, you know, we, 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 I mentioned earlier at the top of the interview that, you know, there, there were people just like any big publicly funded project, there were people that were not in favor of spending the $750 million, which is coming from the hotel tax on a stadium. But to get an event like this, and of course, you're talking one Super Bowl, uh, it doesn't account for all the other events that could come to Las Vegas, including political conventions, including a national championship game for football, uh, in college football. Um, but a, a project or a, a game like this, an event like this, in essence, allows that public who's investing that money via hotel tax to, to recoup that investment, do they not, in one fell swoop? Yeah, I mean, look, the stadium is going to be successful here. The ROI is going to be very high. Our market can capitalize on tour, tourism assets like stadiums, other venues, in ways that others simply can't. Um, keep in mind, we have a powerful competitive advantage here when it comes to sports. We call it the Vegas sports advantage, right? Mm -hmm. It comes down to existing infrastructure, sheer volume of small and mid-sized events. We look different than almost any other market. So to answer your question, we'll generate a massive impact from the stadium when we do host a Super Bowl and over time a much larger uh, return on investment for that public subsidy over the lifetime of this event as we, as we host so many other um, sporting events, entertainment events. And if that wasn't enough, right, this is part of a much larger st strategy to become the sports and entertainment capital of the world. We want to be a leader in sports medicine, a center for sports innovation, so much more. The stadium is just one critical component in that much, much larger strategy for uh, Las Vegas. Again, we're talking to Jonas Peterson, president and CEO of the Las Vegas Global Economic Alliance, about the possible impact of a Super Bowl here in southern Nevada. Now, Jonas, the Super Bowl itself, obviously the biggest event, but... 
it, to to get a game like this or even to be in the running for it, which, it, you know, it, from all intents and purposes, looks like, you know, hopefully 2025 might be the year that that game comes here. But just the idea that the NFL is coming here, you've done a recently a bunch of panel discussions around town, different organizations about the future of sports in Las Vegas, professional sports as well with uh, with your counterparts from the teams themselves. Um, talk about the change in perception already around Las Vegas as a sports market, as a sports destination, because of the addition of the Golden Knights and now the Raiders? Yeah, it's with professional sports coming to the market, we're really completing the package. Um, We already have tremendous infrastructure in place. When you look at the sheer um, number of uh, seats in venues, you know, stadiums, arenas, uh, other entertainment venues, the tourism assets, the hotels, plus the uh, the small and mid-size events and sporting opportunities that already exist in Vegas. Uh, you put it all together, you add professional sports on, the, on top, and we really can um, validate that claim of becoming a sports and entertainment capital, capital of the world. Um, that leads to powerful opportunities in adjacent industries. So right now we're looking at sports medicine, research, innovation, other industries that can that can grow alongside and really diversify our economy. It's a it's a massive opportunity. No, and of course now the NCA lifting their restrictions on some of where you can host uh, regionals and whatnot. That's also going to help Las Vegas because we we have plenty of facilities and we have plenty of rooms for people to come out and visit. Now, uh, as we move on, Jonas, I want to give just a quick opportunity for you to explain a little bit for those that aren't familiar with uh, the Las Vegas Global Economic Alliance. Just give us a little bit, you know, the the quick dime story version of what the LVGEA is doing and and what your role is in our community. Happy to. So the Las Vegas Global Economic Alliance, uh, we are the regional development authority for all of Southern Nevada. It's a public-private partnership, an incredible board of directors that has grown rapidly up to 50 leaders from government, from the private sector, from education, all coming together to move the economy forward. For us, it's all about job creation, capital investment, and um, and strategies to really change and improve Southern Nevada for generations to come. That's great. And we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us here on Beyond the Bill, Jonas. Again, Jonas Peterson, the president and CEO of the Las Vegas Global Economic Alliance. And I'm sure we'll have you on again, but we appreciate the time, Jonas. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it, our conversation with Jonas Peterson from the Las Vegas Global Economic Alliance on the economic impact a Super Bowl could have in Southern Nevada and also overall what this stadium, the new Las Vegas stadium, that impact on our economy. It's, again, one of the things where if you're not a football fan, I understand, but the economics there and recently, of course, we talked last week on the show here that uh, AEG, the Anschutz Group, is going to manage the stadium. That is a big deal because they get huge events to come in, not only concerts and sporting events, but also conventions and other types of um, uh, events that fill that stadium. So just really great news there, and we appreciate you guys listening to the best of Beyond the Build here on News Talk 840 KXNT. We will be back next week with a new show after the holiday. We hope you've rested up and had a great time. We know we have. As always, we appreciate you being with us here, and we thank our main sponsor, the local 872 The Laborers, Uh, who are building Las Vegas all over. Until next week, this is Scott Branson. You've been listening to Beyond the Build here on News Talk 840 KXNT.